Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on, on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry, independent scholar, chief biographer of Hubert Harrison, editor of the Hubert Harrison Papers, and author of Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. Welcome to the show, Dr. Perry. Thank you very much, Dr. Williams, and I appreciate the fact that you're doing this. Uh, of course, part of the reason I wrote this volume and a previous one in the biography is because I want to reach a wide audience of current and future generations, and I think this will help. You know. Yes, yes, we're going to get into some questions specifically on your on your book, but it's an, it's important, really, multi volume. On study, and this is your second volume, and uh, we might even talk about the first volume a little bit too, if we have the time. Uh, so first, we will discuss Dr. Perry's biography, his personal biography, and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of his text on Hubert Harrison. So, Dr. Perry, tell us uh, some more about your own uh, research interest background. Um. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in my 70s now, and I'm a product of the 60s. And uh, I'm, my work, my roots are entirely working class. I don't think anyone in my family ever went to college. No one ever went to college. I don't know if anyone ever finished high school. And um, uh, but I did get to go to some good schools um, after uh, growing up. Uh, and uh, I. In college, I started to very much question, because it was the period of the civil rights, black liberation struggle, the anti-war movement, and things like that. And I got involved with quite a number of movements. Uh, And uh, along the way, I started developing uh, an understanding. And I'm talking about doing work with Black Panthers, with Puerto Rican socialist movement, had friends in the Asian movement, had friends in the labor movement. It was wide ranging, my interests. And I went into the labor movement in a conscious effort after dropping out of graduate school um, to, uh, I resisted the draft, you know, lots of things like that. And uh, I decided that I wanted to go into the labor movement and try and organize basically around the concept uh, of getting uh, European-American workers to oppose white supremacy and, and to take part significantly in the struggle for a better world with African-Americans, Puerto Ricans. And I, I thought white supremacy was the principal retardant to efforts at social change, and it had to be taken on. And so I went into the workplace, but I continued my graduate work, and I wound up getting a PhD in history. Um, and I started writing my uh, doctoral dissertation uh, in the 80s under uh, Nathan Huggins, who later went from Columbia University, where I was, up to Harvard, 
um, found what became the Du Bois Institute, and Hollis Lynch, who had written some important work on Garvey and Blyden and things like that, and who I still stay in touch with. Uh, Huggins passed away. And um, I, I was writing on essentially the question of why no socialism in the U.S.? This is going back late 70s. Uh, and I looked at all the, and, and I, all, but I looked at uh, a wide array of literature, left literature, um, uh, on efforts at, you know, challenging capitalism in this country. And um, I thought they were seriously lacking in any insight into how central the struggle against white supremacy was. And then along the way, I came across an article by J.A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color and an article by Richard B. Moore in uh, Encyclopedia, I believe it was, of African-American History and an article by Philip Foner that mentioned someone named Hubert Harrison. And I did not know much about him. This is about around 1980. That's 40 years ago. So I set out to find a little about him and I... Um, I uh, went to Schomburg Center where I had done some previous research and I was able to find Harrison's two books on, um, you know, on microfiche, whatever the, the, the form was <laughs> we used back then. And I printed out copies and took them home and read them. And I was totally arrested by the clarity of Harrison's thought. In particular, two things struck him, uh, struck me about his writings. He, um, as I said, he understood the centrality of fighting against white supremacy, but he also understood, and many people don't even today, that this white supremacy was not in the interest of European American working people. And that, you know, since I was in the, working, in the workplace trying to do organizing, this was a very important concept, I thought. And um, so I set out to try and write something about him, and I wrote letters, which back then you could write the same letter and change who it was going to. That was a big innovation back then. And I sent 35 or 40 letters and a librarian down in the Virgin Islands wrote back and said she was related to Harrison's uh, family. And she sent me their contact information. So I went and contact uh, Harrison's son and daughter. Son was in Harlem, daughter was in Yonkers. And we met uh, in, in Harlem. And then we met a couple of other times in Harlem at the son's apartment. And on the second visit, I left them three chapters I had written on their father. And on the fourth visit, or, or second visit, and then on the third visit, uh, they said, come into the front room. It was a railroad flat, if you will, you know. And um, it, there in the closet was Harrison's papers or what was left of them. They had been preserved by the family since Hubert Harrison's death in 1927. And let me say, Hubert Harrison lived from 1883 to 1927. He's born in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, comes to New York in 1900. And he's known as the father of Harlem radicalism. J.A. Rogers describes him as the foremost Afro-American intellect of his era. And uh, he's a major influence radical on A. Philip Randolph and Marcus Garvey. That's the class radicals in the African-American community and the race radicals in the African-American community. He's a, a pioneering uh, soapbox orator. He's the first regular black book reviewer in Negro newspaperdom and our first regular lecturer for the New York City Board of Education and on and on, all 
without the benefit of any college education. He was an autodidact, self-educated, and that's how he learned. And that's and he realized many other people were in that situation, and he put out many insightful writings on the importance of reading, using public libraries, etc. So coming back to the story I was on, so after I met his children and showed them two or three chapters I had done, they took me into the front room of that railroad flat apartment, and they said, here, take these and do with these what you need to do. And I was overwhelmed, um, both by you know what they were doing, but also by the responsibility I now had. So I took all these boxes of material back. I live in North Jersey. I took them back to where I lived, and I began a process that went on for years of after work, I would uh, inventory, I transcribe, I would digitize. I got the acid-free paper and the mylar. I became an archivist overnight, if you will, and um, and started working on this collection. And I wound up um, uh, finishing my dissertation in, uh, I think, 1987 or 88. And that was 800 and some odd pages, big dissertation. And, uh, and that was only because Huggins and Lynch said, Jeff, you got to put a halt on it now. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I turned that in, of course, you know, it passed. And uh, after I finished my dissertation in orals at Columbia, and my orals, I had some good advisors. So I had uh, Eric Foner and um, Elliot Skinner and uh, Charles Hamilton, in addition to my two advisors. So I had some very good people. And um, after I finished that, Hubert Harrison's daughter, and I went out for a celebratory meal. And it was at B. Smith's restaurant. I don't know if people are familiar with that. And uh, it was a big splurge for me. And uh, at the end of the meal, she reached into her pocket. And she said, here, Jeff, take this. And she handed to me Hubert Harrison's diary. Here I had written 800 pages on half of his life. And I had no idea that the diary existed. So I said, oh, my gosh. So, um, you know, I set to work on writing this. And uh, I went to a next historian's convention that came up. And the first table I went to was LSU Press, which was writing things in the area of black studies back then. And they said, please don't show this to anybody else. We want to do it. You know, so I sent them within a short time uh, my manuscript. But it was still only for volume one because I was convinced I had a two-volume biography. And they, the outside readers' uh, reviews were staggeringly good. But LSU had a, a problem. Who am I and who is Hubert Harrison? I think essentially is what it came down to. And, right. and they, didn't, yeah. they didn't know how to deal with that. And we went through it again and I resubmitted and the reviews came back similarly, um, you know, very positive. But they, they just sat on it. So after over a decade, uh, I spoke with a friend of mine, Winston James, who had I had been in touch with and who had uh, used some of my work in when he wrote his book on Holding Aloft the Banner of Ethiopia. It's a very wonderful book. And uh, he suggested I speak with a fellow named Peter Dimmock, who was a senior editor at Columbia University Press, who he knows, who he knew, still knows. And um, I did. And uh, when I went out and I had a little lunch with Peter Dimmick and he asked me what I do and what I work on, uh, I said, well, I'm working on Hubert Harrison and that's what I'd like to get published in a book. But I uh, also do work on Theodore W. Allen. And that's the other person I do write on. And Theodore W. Allen was uh, uh, a European-American activist, coal miner, an autodidact like uh, Hubert Harrison, 
also a postal worker like Hubert Harrison, like me. <laughs> we all had the postal work in common. And mm-hmm. um, and uh, I mentioned uh, Theodore W. Allen, and Dimmick said, oh, my gosh. He goes, I remember that brilliant critique of Edmund Morgan that he wrote in Monthly Review in 1978. And I said, wow, this guy understands that? Maybe I'm, I got somebody with some empathy for what I do. And uh, so... He said, but I can't talk to you officially until while you're under contract with another publisher. So I broke the contract with LSU and I went to Columbia and we wound up publishing the first volume, uh, which was over 600 pages. And it's Hubert Harrison, the voice of Harlem radicalism, uh, 19, 1883 to 1918. And then the second volume is Hubert Harrison. The one just published is Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality. 1918 to 1927. So in very broad strokes. But in addition to this, I've written other things on Harrison. I've written a Hubert Harrison reader uh, for Wesleyan University Press. I've done uh, an update of one of Harrison's books, When Africa Awakes, The Inside Story of the Stirrings and Strivings of the New Negro in the Western World. I did that for Diasporic Africa Press. And um, I've done, I read, I did updates of Allen's two volume, The Invention of the White Race for Verso books with new introductions and uh, notes, etc. And each of those works, they've asked me, uh, people have asked me to do uh, uh, new uh, supplements to in the upcoming year. But I, right now I'm concentrating totally on getting Hubert Harrison volume two out and around and get, making people aware of Harrison's importance and uh but in a and oh and all, all the while i'm doing that i wrote about five or six hundred articles related to postal and labor work because i was a, an editor at the branch local and national level um in one of the postal unions and i was in constant struggles with management and with the union which was an organized crime dominated union although we had some black leadership which they tried to take out and they successfully did and they knocked me out as editor so it's been a you know struggles throughout <laughs> Right, sure. So, so that's some um, of the intellectual background. And and again, the key things, if I may, the key things that appealed to me first, they were in Harrison and Allen, the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy and how it was not in European American workers' interest. And when I talk about the centrality, Harrison, for instance, as far back as nineteen eleven when he's in the Socialist Party, offers some profound comments. Uh, and I oftentimes when I do talks, I also did three or 400 talks going around after volume one came out, but I'd go around with a touchstone, which is a black stone. People might not be familiar with it. And Harrison would often say that uh, politically, the Negro is the touchstone of the modern democratic idea. And I thought that was brilliantly profound because the touch, uh, touchstone is a stone, you rub the metal against it to see if it's really the gold it purports to be. And so if you put, quote, democracy to that test and see how black people are faring, you'll see if it's really as good as it's purported to be or not. And I I thought that was very insightful. And then Harrison went on in the same passage to essentially say, uh, and true equality uh, and democracy for the Negro implies a revolution startling to even think of. So that, that was kind of Harrison's perspective, particularly in the early years when he 
goes, and he's a leading black activist in the Socialist Party in the early years. So let's go back for a minute to this concept of the intellectual and intellectual history. And um, so how would you define those two terms? First, intellectual. What is an intellectual? And then how do you define intellectual history? An intellectual, I guess, is just one who uh, grapples with and thinks about ideas and and takes them seriously and reads and studies and discusses. Um, And, and, you know, I think that's what it is. Uh, Tries to learn uh, the forces that influence the ideas and shapes the ideas. questions of how you disseminate ideas, how ideas are sometimes kept from dissemination, uh, all of that in those broad areas, I think, deal with intellectual history. And I've had experience with all those. Um, But in Harrison's case, um, he writes, he's always emphasizing work with the common people, which he refers to affectionately, the man and woman in the street. And he would write things like, read, 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 you know, just do, do things like that. And he would speak at free public libraries. He considered the free public library one of the great institutions in the country. And um, he uh, he spoke or read six, to varying degrees, six languages including uh, in his last years, he was teaching himself Arabic and reading the Quran because it was a religion of so many people of African descent. Uh, J. Rogers, as I think I mentioned earlier, considered him the foremost Afro-American intellect of his era, and others held him in that high regard. Um, So I think that intellectual history has to do with ideas and uh, or you know, how they're disseminated, discussed. One thing that was a shaping influence on Harrison in his first decade in New York, he came to New York in 1900. He got involved in black intellectual circles uh, in two churches on West 53rd Street, uh, St. Benedict the Moor was the principal one. And those churches held lyceums, usually once a week where African-American and Afro-Caribbeans would come together. And these were basically working people, although they were really intellectuals, also people like Arthur Schomburg, Johnny Bruce, Williana Jones. She later became Williana Jones Burroughs, Charles Burroughs, uh, and people like this. And they would get together and they would have discussions and debates. And um, and Harrison kept a diary where, and, and, oh, yeah, I mentioned his diary, and where he would comment on uh, the caliber and character of these debates. And they were debates where people would freely speak their mind, yet they could come after the, the meeting and still be friends and talk, you know, and further their understanding. And it was a wonderful intellectual atmosphere that he was reared in amongst these working people. And it was something that stayed with him for the next 20 or so years of his life. He would speak openly and uh, he'd try to be speak knowledgeably on whatever he was writing about, but it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't mean spirited, but he did, he did write striking critiques over the next uh, two decades of uh, uh, Booker T. Washington, Woodrow Wilson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, you know, lots of important people. Um, he'd write very important critiques. And uh, that's 
one of the reasons some of his uh, uh, Jolie Spingarn of the NAACP, uh, uh, White Ovington, what's her, uh, I forget her first name, uh, of the NAACP. And um, so he would write these critiques and people, um, you know, would often be stung by his criticisms. And uh, that's one of the reasons he's not better known. He also, uh, in his diary, he describes how in 19, he writes it in 1907, but he describes how his intellectual pursuits led him to break from Christianity. He became a free thinker. And he talks how in early in 1900s, he started going back through uh, religious literature and church history and things like that and found that he could not really agree with or believe what was written. And he started to challenge, you know, mentally challenge a lot of this stuff. And uh, he turned to something that was called the free thought movement, which was uh, a movement of thought unfettered by religious doctrine, etc. And he got active a little bit with the free thinkers in the early period. And uh, that was also that also set him at odds with. Uh, at that time, the black church was was still a problem. The black church is the most powerful institution in the black community. But he would be critical. And later in the twenties, in the second volume, when we uh, when I talk, uh, and I what I do in the book is throughout both books, but it's very obvious in the second volume. I let Harrison speak for himself, and a lot of his criticisms of say Christianity. Are when, he, when he criticizes Christianity in Africa and the role it plays, you know, in what we would now call the third world. And, uh, he, you know, it's some devastating critiques. And um, it's hard for a lot of people to accept. <laughs> and uh, so he, you know, as Harrison writes, he's very independent and he's writing these things. He has no money virtually because he works he works as a postal worker for about four years up until 1911. But after he writes his criticisms of Booker T. Washington, uh, Booker T. Washington had something that they called the Tuskegee machine, his network of people. And uh, they got uh, through uh, with, along with Emmett Scott, they got through to a fellow named Morgan, who was the postmaster of New York, who, by the way, to this day, the biggest postal facility in New York City, Morgan Station, is named after. And they had Harrison summarily fired from his postal work um, for two articles he wrote in one of the New York dailies, which were critical of Booker T. Washington after Booker T. Washington went to Europe and essentially said, things are fine back home for black people. And Harrison said, well, Booker T., you're free to say what you want, but you should tell the truth. And he took him to task for that. And Harrison had had a clean postal record. Now, I was a postal worker and a union activist, so I knew how to get his records from the record archives in St. Louis. He had a clean record, and then he was summarily fired. And this was a devastating blow because Harrison and his wife would ultimately have five children together, and he would live basically in poverty or close to poverty for the remainder of his life. So he paid the price then and later for his, um, you know, his integrity of thought, if you will. Mm -hmm. So this, on this point of intellectual, and clearly, as you said, in the record, he's referred to as a foremost intellectual of his day. And I think 
in American intellectual history, um, the history of ideas, the history of knowledge production, which are tying all to Harrison, right? That he was producing knowledge, he was writing, you know, and agitating for um, equality and so on. So there are these different phrases, activist intellectual, organic intellectual, and uh, so on. Um, You use the phrase autodidact. And um, so would you also say he was an organic intellectual in that regard? Yes, right. I, I would. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's uh, he's doing this a lot on his own or with his friends, you know, or people he interacts with. Um, he's self-educated. He he never goes beyond uh, high school. You know, he never went to college or anything like that. Um, although when he's in high school, he, he starts to go to high school when he's in the U.S. He hadn't gone down in St. Croix. And when he's in high school, uh, there's a headline in the early 20th century, something along the lines of genius found in West Indian student. And they all of a sudden raved about this student named Hubert Harrison, who was working five days a week and three nights, went to school the other nights and got citywide honors in Latin and something. You know, they hadn't seen anybody like this. So he was he was really brilliant. Um, and he was a brilliant speaker. I mean, Everyone who saw him raved about him as a speaker. And, uh, uh, you know, that William Pickens later writes some wonderful things, but people write from <clears throat> way back in 1914. You know, people are writing and talking about him as a speaker. He does do uh, hundreds and hundreds of talks in the book, volume two, as well as in volume one. I list many of his talks and his topics. And so he's bringing these talks when they're indoors or outdoors. His outdoor talks, he spoke before as many as 50,000 people at Union Square in New York. He, one afternoon, he went, according to the New York Times in 1911, he went down to the corner of Broad and Wall Street at one o'clock in the afternoon and started speaking on socialism for as far as his voice could reach. And when the market closed at four, the crowd was still there. And in my uh, updated understanding of this, I referred to this as an early occupation of Wall Street. You know, he, he did things like that. And um, he would speak when he was camp, <coughs> excuse me, when he was campaigning for the Socialist Party. He spoke as many as 23 times a week. Later on, he would speak all over New York, sometimes in Brooklyn, places like this. He also went out to the Midwest, to Philadelphia, to D.C., to Virginia. Um, But uh, in particular, at 134th Street and Lenox Avenue in New York, uh, they used to refer to that as Liberty Corner, and that's where he would often speak. It was diac, you know, near the uh, Schomburg Center. And um, uh, some years ago, uh, a petition was taken up to have that corner named, uh, that street named after Hubert Harrison, and it unanimously passed at Community Board 10, but I don't think it's been implemented yet. Um, and uh, here's a picture on my Facebook page when we were getting signatures for that, and Dr. Ben Yackerman is there with us and along with Harrison's daughter, some other people, you know, as we're doing that little campaign. So tell us the layout and structure of your, of your second volume, this book we're concerned with today, you know, walk us through the, the, the major parts. Great. I will. Let me just, I've got something here that makes it easy. So as you get older, you forget something. (laughs) Uh, 
Let me see what's the best one. Okay, well, we can use this. Uh, oh, no, I got it right here on screen. Forgive me. Mm-mm-mm. What did I do? And I think, as you said, what we might also talk about why you feel second volume was necessary, because the first volume is, isn't that like 800 pages too? 600 and some odd pages, but it only goes up to 1918, and he lives right. eight years more. So uh, there's much more of that story to tell. So um, here's what we do in volume two. Uh, it follows that first volume, and, and I open up, I explain who Hubert Harrison was uh, and his role, I quote from Rogers and I quote from uh, Richard B. Moore, who describes him uh, as uh, above all his contemporaries in his steady emphasis that a vital aim was the liberation of the oppressed African and other colonial peoples. That's part of the international appeal and aspect of Harrison, how he played uniques. Now, getting into Harrison in the intro, I just laid this out, but it's important, I think, for people to understand he played unique signal roles in the largest class radical movement, socialism, and the largest race radical movement, the New Negro Garvey movement of his era. He was a major influence uh, uh, on the race radical Garvey, on the class radical Randolph and the race radical Garvey and other militant New Negroes and common people in the period around World War One. W.A. Domingo, a socialist and the first editor of the Negro World, Garvey's newspaper, explained that Garvey, like the rest of us, Randolph Moore, Grace Campbell, Chandler Owen, Cyril Briggs, and other militant new Negroes followed Hubert Harrison. I'll point out here that Marcus Garvey actually joined Hubert Harrison's organization, the Liberty League. And for those familiar with Garvey, he's not one to join anyone else's organization, but he joined, and we'll get into Garvey a little bit more later. Uh, the historian and Garvey expert Robert A. Hill refers to Harrison as the new Negro ideological mentor. Considered the most class conscious of the race radicals and the most race conscious of the class radicals in those years, Harrison is a key link in two great trends of the civil rights black liberation struggle. The labor and civil rights trend associated with Randolph and Martin Luther King Jr. and the race and nationalist trend associated with Garvey and Malcolm X. King marched on Washington with Randolph at his side and Malcolm's father was a newspaper, was a Garveyite preacher and his mother a reporter for Garvey's Negro World, the newspaper for which Harrison had been principal editor. This second volume details the extraordinary last nine years of Harrison's life, um, which were lived at the edge of poverty in the United States, shaped by capitalism, imperialism, and white supremacy. <clears throat> he had been a leader in the struggle against those forces, but he had found that the left and labor movements of the United States put the, quote, white race first before class. In that context, he deemed it a priority to work at developing an enlightened race consciousness, racial solidarity, and radical international nationalism among Negro people, especially the common uh, people, in struggles for political equality against white supremacy and for radical social change. So now this second volume has four broad chapters. Part one is 1918-19, covers his pioneering seminal and long ignored writings and work that gave direction to the militant new Negro movement. 
Now, most people associate the New Negro with Alain Locke's publication of 1925, but Harrison, beginning in 1917 in particular, was uh, putting out, putting forth ideas and uh, speaking about, writing about the New Negro movement, and uh, he was clearly a pioneer and leader in this. And that's seven years before. And Harrison's New Negro movement was not only literary; it was political. Locke's New Negro was much more of a literary contribution, but Harrison's was um, political also. So volume one, it uh, covers his pioneering seminal role, New Negro Movement. Part two of the book details his outstanding contributions and influence as a writer for and editor of the Negro world. It discusses his differences with Garvey, as well as his differences with black socialists, including the emancipator uh, group, uh, which includes um, Cyril Briggs, A. Philip Randolph, W.A. Domingo, etc., and makes clear that Harrison's writings and literary influence, including his book review and poetry for the people columns, contributed significantly to the climate leading up to Alain Locke's 1925 publication. So even when Harrison's doing his writing in these publications, it, it's political writing, but it's literary writing, too. He's involving artists. He's doing book reviews. He's doing poetry for the people. He's bringing these people into, you know, into the orb of the Negro world, if you will. He does um, uh, uh, poetry for the people, book review, and uh, West Indian News Notes is another initiative that he takes. In part three of this volume, uh Harrison, it focuses on his prolific and wide-ranging writing and speaking efforts as an independent freelance educator, including his work as a public lecturer for over four years with the New York City Board of Education. I believe he's a pioneer in this. I have not found anyone else who was a regular Black uh, Board of Education lecturer, and he did this for over five, four years. Usually at night, it was adult school classes for the Board of Education and as a regular columnist for the Boston Chronicle for a period of about six months, he was writing regular uh, articles for the Boston Chronicle, wonderful short articles uh, for a black uh, publication called the Boston Chronicle, Boston Chronicle. And part four from 1924 to 27 examines his innovative and more broadly unitary efforts in his last years, including the founding of his final organization, the International Colored Unity League, and its organ, the voice of the Negro. Now, a couple more things I'd like to say, if that's okay. He, uh, sure. When I set out to write this book, I try in the introduction to give people a little feel for how I'm approaching this. And I quote from Harrison from an early entry in his diary when he's 24 years old in 1907. And by the way, let me say, um, when I placed these papers at Columbia, I emphasized that we wanted to get as much as we could of Harrison's writings and work online, freely available as possible. And it took a while because I placed these papers <laughs> back uh, a number of years ago. But finally, last year, Columbia put up over 1,300 items from Harrison's papers, including his diary, which runs over 200 pages and lots of other things. So in this second line, this second volume of the Harrison biography, which the, the, the notes run almost 200 pages, you will find links 
to what, what I'm talking about in the book. If I'm quoting from his diary here, you can go right to the diary and read the pages yourself. If he's reviewing a book, and there are many, there are hundreds of book reviews he does. If the book is available online uh, from Hathi Trust or the Internet Archive, some type of a stable archive, I link to it and you can look at the book he's reviewing. So this is meant, this is all meant to be part of the effort to have these Harrison volumes stand the test of time, to be around for the next 50 or 100 years as a source that people can use and draw from and build off. But when he starts writing uh, his diary back in 1907, he writes this. It must surely be instructive to look back after long years on one's past thoughts and deeds and form new estimates of ourselves and others. Seen from another perspective, large things grow small, small ones large, and the lives of relative importance are bound to change position. At any rate, it must be instructive to compare the impression of the moment, laden as it may be with the bias of feeling and clouded by partisan or personal prejudice, with the more broad and impartial review which distance in time or uh, space makes possible. This may serve me in some sort as a history of myself, twisted of two threads, what I do and what I think. I hope I shall not make any conscious effort to impress upon its character of any sort. So far as life is concerned, as it comes, so must it be set down. And if I omit any one phase of my life's experience, I do so for judicial reasons and not for the sake of seeming better in my own eyes when memory has ceased to testify. So that gives you a sense of the importance of this document. He's putting it right down there. He has a sense that people will come after and he thinks the work he's taking on is important. Um, a couple of other little comments I just offer early in the opening chapter to give a little feel for where this book is going is... Is um, uh, I I say I quote here from uh, let me find it. I I I draw from one of Harrison's meditations. He would sometimes put meditations in the Negro world, and there was one entitled "A Soul in Search of Itself," and wherein he offers the the uh, idea, the concept that no man was ever as good as his creed. You know, he's, he, he understands, you know, people aren't everything that they would like to be or hope to be. And in a similar vein, this volume approach also draws from comments by two of Harrison's contemporaries, Eugene O'Neill and J.A. Rogers. O'Neill, a future recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature, in a June 19, 1921 letter to Harrison, after Harrison had done a wonderful review of the Emperor Jones, um, writes, the only propaganda that ever strikes home is the truth about the human soul, black or white. Intentional uplift never amounts to a dam, especially as uplift. To portray a human being, that is all that counts. That's what uh, uh, um, O'Neill writes to Harrison. I, I try to have that in my mind all the time as I'm writing this book. And then Rogers, who was a historian and one of the most perceptive writers on Harrison's life, uh, and Rogers wrote World's Great Men of Color and all these other wonderful works. He's a, a lay historian, autodidact like Harrison, and a Pullman train porter. Um, Rogers writes, um, uh, Harrison was not without his faults. The life of any leader scrutinized detail for detail does not look like the handsome image presented by ecstatic admirers after flaws have been removed 
and bits retouched. As the saying goes, no man is a hero to his valet. In Harrison's case, however, as, as Rogers emphasizes, this is no reason to deny his essential greatness. Finally, this is the close of my introduction. This volume keeps in mind words uttered at Harrison's funeral by the extraordinary bibliophile of the Black experience, Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, words that partly inspired the writing of this biography. Puerto Rico-born Schomburg, with great historical perspective and knowing how immensely popular and significant Harrison was in his day, stated simply, he came ahead of his time. With these words, Schomburg correctly points to Harrison's importance for current and future generations. So I want to talk about, it's making me think about something I'm working on in, in relation to uh, Ernie Thompson, a labor leader from North Jersey, and um, his um, commitment to, you know, working class struggles. But at the same time, he, he was going out to work. He was churning out, you know, two books really that he wrote. I think his daughter published one of his books. So I want to talk about, so he was very prolific. He's an organic intellectual, like, you know, just like Harrison. So how did, how did Harrison sustain himself at, you know, churning out all of these writings that he's doing? I mean, how was he able to um, push out all of this writing? He, he lived at the edge of poverty for the most part. He, um, uh, Never had really well when he worked for the uh, Negro World for a period of time, he, and he was the managing editor. He really reshaped that publication in 1920, which we can talk about. But after losing his work at the post office, uh, he would lecture. He would sell books on the street corner. He would lecture and get some money for uh, selling books at his talks. Some sometimes for the talks he gave, he'd get some money but always at the edge of poverty with a wife and the fifth child was born in 1920. So he's living at the edge of poverty. Then when he get, starts uh, managing editor of the Negro world for a while, he's getting paid, I think it's about $30 a week back then, you know? And so that was able to pay some bills for a period of time, but he, he stays only for a period of time with that because there's issues that come up uh, by the end of 1920. And he, backs off being the managing editor, although he continues to submit articles for another year or so, a little over a year, uh, for some income. And he doesn't get regular pay after that until he's lecturing for the Board of Education a couple years later. He'll pick up occasional jobs someplace, but he lives in poverty. Sometimes in the paper, you'll see he's getting notices about uh, possible eviction, you know, or non-payment of rent and things like this for him and his family. Um he sometimes has to borrow money from people. Not sometimes he does. Yet he still also helps people. So uh, he was friends with a, a great artist, architect, uh, uh, um, not architect, uh, uh, sculptor, Augusta Savage. And when she is trying to go abroad to take advantage of a study opportunity, uh, she contacts him and living in poverty as he is, he works to help put her in contact with people who might help support her efforts, you know. So he was very generous. He also helped other struggling artists and poets, a uh, fella named Watkins and uh, Claude McKay, 
sends Harrison articles to see if he can help them get him around, particularly when Claude McKay's in England. And um, Saul Platt, who's from South Africa. So he's very generous with his time. But he also, Harrison will stay up till the wee hours of the morning and then, uh, you know, writing and reading uh, and uh you know, doing all his intellectual work. Now, one thing that was written when he died, which I found very interesting, because he read voluminously, and uh, Oscar Benson, a journalist for uh, one of the New York dailies, wrote that it was said that Harrison read, (laughs) at first I was staggered by this, as many as six books a day. But then I stepped back a little and I read a little further, I read a little more. And what Harrison actually did oftentimes is he he had the great f- capability facility for picking up a book, taking a look at it, read the contents, read the uh, back, um, look through it, see what the contents were, maybe focusing in on whatever chapters or sections interest him, and uh, you know he had a good memory and mind, and uh, he could move on to something else. So he would read all the time, and uh, and digest. So when you see his writings. He's reading about black history, African history, Caribbean history, uh, India, China, the Arab world, 19th century literature, 20th century literature, you know, sociology, all these different fields. And he, he puts out book review sections in the paper and he does reviews of all these books and uh, recommend, recommended lists of books uh, to read. Uh, just extraordinarily wide ranging, um, but he would he would work tirelessly, and that was by all accounts. And that was one of the things when he dies. He dies in 1927 of what was said to be an appendicitis related condition. That his he went into the uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York, seemed to be doing better, and then um, it it is said his appendix rupture. I, they, he died from appendicitis related condition. Friend who's a doctor said what that probably meant was that his appendicitis his appendix ruptured, um, but he was only forty four. But some of the obituaries that came out right after his death said, you know, here we have Hubert Harrison, one of the greats of our era, and we let him run himself into the ground, working tirelessly. So that was one of the things that happened because um, on reasons why Harrison's not better known, if I may, um, yes, he uh, some of the standard reasons he's not better known are he's uh, he's from the Caribbean, he's working class, he's an immigrant, he's poor, he's very dark skinned, which is a factor in uh, he, it was said he couldn't get published, couldn't get a regular job on any but one uh, paper in New York, I guess that paper being the Negro world, right? And um, he, uh, uh, those are some of the factors, but then he's also a, a, a principled and strong critic on class, race, and religion, right? So those are powerful forces um, out there. He also, um, you know, speaks forthrightly and criticizes a number of leading people on the left in the labor movement. And I give lists of those in volume, volume one. I list a lot of people in the socialist movement, the labor movement, and the black movement that he criticizes. Um, so the, these are all factors that go into why he's not better known. But he also had no long-lasting organizational ties 
unlike, for instance, Garvey, who had the Garvey movement, which tried to keep his name alive even after his death, um, like Du Bois, who got picked up particularly later on by uh, left groups um, and, uh, you know, other people. He, he didn't have these long-lasting organizational ties. And um, so that was another factor. But I think one of the major factors, and this is really a subject of a whole other discussion, is how history is written in this country. And I, I've learned this firsthand from my experience, but I learned it also from Harrison and from Allen, these other autodidactic historians and what they were up against, you know. And uh, when I mentioned earlier, when I brought the book, uh, uh, Harrison, I, I met with Peter Dimmick, the uh, editor at Columbia at the time, about Harrison's work. And he told me, oh, he knew how important Harrison was after, uh, how important Allen was after Allen wrote that critique of uh, Edmund Morgan. Edmund Morgan was a prominent historian, president of the organization, American historians, et cetera. And um, he, uh, he said, in essence, as I recall, I don't mean to misquote him, I don't mean to misquote anybody, but he said something along the lines of, Jeff, you realize 90% of the historian, 95% of the historians don't know who Hubert Harrison is. And of those who do, 95% probably feel their work is threatened by Harrison, <laughs> you know, and by that, amongst other things, I, I took that to mean the following. If you are a historian today and you've been writing and making a name, writing on, say, for instance, the new Negro, and you don't mention Harrison, or you mention Harrison in passing, or you mention Harrison in passing and get the dates of his articles, etc all wrong, losing the primacy of his work. You know, you know there are all these ways that uh, Harrison doesn't come to the fore as he should. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's clearly true in Harrison's case. And I can, I can cite, cite specifics, you know, on a lot of this stuff and have audio tapes to back me up. And uh, he, it's just, uh, and that's why, I appreciate so much what you're doing here and what we're doing with this interview, because I think the way Harrison's going to get not the attention he deserves, but the attention he merits is um, by bringing this material to current and future generations, younger scholars in particular, who are open to learn this stuff and hear it. Because people who are deep into their careers or even people who are starting out on their careers and don't want to jeopardize their relations with the powers that be in the academy, they're a little bit reluctant to uh, get too deeply into Harrison. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I said, um, I said to one scholar who wanted to write on Harrison, I said, well, why don't you write about Harrison, New Negro, and Alain Locke, you know, because that's a very important discussion. And uh, the, the scholar said, uh, said basically, Jeff, I, I got a career to think of. <laughs> you know, because there's people who've made their their reputation on their writings on a new Negro. <laughs> if you, if you... Right. Yeah. It's such a vast field that, um, and I think, like you said, Du Bois is kind of seen as, that's a part of it too, because Du Bois is seen as the foremost intellectual, you know, of that era and beyond. So there are, you know, I always like to say intellectual fiefdoms. Yeah, 
very, very good. Very good. Yeah, and, and those are out there, and that's true. And, yeah, a very, I think, perceptive point by you. Yes. But, but another point that you argued that he wasn't attached to a specific organization long term like Garvey or Du Bois was. And my, the part, argument I am, am making in some of my work is that we need a new language to talk about people who straddled multiple organizations, especially if they were in the NAACP and the UNIA mm-hmm. over time. And um, the language I'm thinking or looking at is somebody who might be willing to do interracial co- cooperation, but their ultimate goal is, you know, or they understand society as a pluralistic, pluralistic society and they understand the importance of um, black leadership and black agency. Mm-hmm. So for me, that person is the interracialist pluralist. Mm-hmm. And then a person who is a separatist, but they might not say, well, I'm not, you know, going to Africa, I'm going to stay here. And, um, but in order to get to that space or place or community that I call my own, that person might be a separatist pluralist. And we don't use that language. We tend to look at um, Black freedom struggles through a dichotomous framing, although that's broken down a great deal, I think, in the last decade or two, where someone is, if if someone's an interracialist or if someone's a separatist, they're clearly, you know, they're either one or the other. And I think it's more complicated than that, especially with somebody like Harrison. I fully agree. Who's kind of an independent contractor. Yeah. But he's straddling, straddling these organizations, but he's not necessarily in them in the way that Du Bois is with NAACP and Garvey is with the UNIA. That we need a language, I think, as especially scholars of the history of ideas. Uh-huh. I mean, social history of the civil rights movement, right? Most most of it's social history. And, you know, intellectual historians, I think, it's not an either or. Separatist, you know, versus integrationist versus... I think people are complicated. They're much more complicated that, I than... I fully agree. And uh, excellent, excellent. Yes. Go on. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, I think you you have exactly the correct point with Harrison and why he gets overshadowed. But it's, I think it's come to the point, especially with your work, your two volumes on him, it becomes a point where you, how can you not mention him? I, right? I, I, I hope the work that, is there. The I source is there. Case. And he's got a little of something for everybody to let me think about, you know? Uh, and uh, when he's with the socialist, he winds up leaving the socialist and he explains why. He goes, because the socialist leaders and the labor leaders put the white race first before class. What am I to do in this situation? And that's when he turns to race race conscious, racial solidarity. And he founds the New Negro Movement, the Liberty League, and uh, the Voice, his first newspaper of the New Negro Movement. And then he's building on that, that racial solidarity, uh, and he extends it to international color. He writes wonderful stuff on the need for international colored unity. But he also, even later on, writes, um, he writes in 26 or so, he goes, look, I would be a, a, a radical wherever I was <laughs> under whatever conditions. You know, uh, he, he's got, you know, he's he understands class. He understands race, white supremacy, you know, and, and he... Uh, I'm sorry. So he's just, he's very deep and he writes and is, 
he, I mean, he has an incredibly important passages on Pan-Africanism early. You know, he's writing on this. Lots of topics that people are going to be interested in if they can get their hands on this book and go through it. It takes time. The, the, the index is pretty good. Uh, I think they had to cut it down a little to get it within the thousand page limit. It ends right. How did they get? How did they allow you to do it? The index is the first one I did myself. It's very thorough, (laughs) but this one ends at a thousand. But you can find things, and also I recommend for those who want to do it is if you get the ebook version. In some ways, that's easier to search through, you know, Um, and to link to then. But I, I in any. Anyway, I mean, I, I think you want to have the print version too, but if you're doubling up at all. Um, but uh, again, you, you hit, I think the nail on the head. Harrison is very complex, um, but he's got so much to offer in so many areas and uh, should not be overlooked. And we want to get him out there as best we can, the current and future generations. I think that's. Yeah, so my last question is really about, I wanted to go back to this word radical and how it applies to him, especially in light of the recent, um, which is, you know, a white supremacist terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I want to know, so this term radical as it applies to an African-American or a black person African in the American context, what does that mean, Radical. Well, it means many things. I mean, Harrison stood for armed self-defense during the 1919 riots, after Tulsa, um, after, um, uh, you know, in uh, when the, uh, what was the big one in 1917? Uh, <laughs> forgive me. You know, he, he's putting out calls for armed self-defense repeatedly. And, uh, and that's how you got to stop the Klan. And that's how you got to stop you know, all these attacks on our community. We have to be able to defend ourselves. And he's very militant in that regard. Uh, He's very radical uh, in terms of his programs in the International Colored Unity League. Towards the end of his life, he's putting out uh, calls for, uh, quote, Negro cooperatives, uh, Negro, um, you know, efforts at... uh, 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 j- work, you know, job situations and uh, uh, unity organizations, much broader, even though he was a critic of the church for many years, he's talking about much broader uh, unity now in the International Colored Unity League. He goes, we've got to come together. We've got to deal with these things. Um, but he's always, throughout his work, he's got an eye on class because that's what he knows from growing up. His mother was a, an immigrant from Barbados, a plantation worker, and his father was born enslaved as a plantation working Crucian laborer. And he lived on a plantation and then in the water gut section of Christianstead. That's the poorest section, you know, down, down yeah, in, in Christianstead. And he, he knew poverty. And he writes later on, he goes, I think this, this uh, intimacy with poverty was one of the real important uh, factors in my life and in my understanding. He knew poor and working people, and he he never lost that either. Um, So he's opposed to white supremacy. He's opposed to capitalism. He's opposed to imperialism. And he's radical on all these issues, very radical. And he'll take on and speak openly about that. Um, So that's partly, I guess, an answer to what you're asking. No, absolutely. I think um, my I think my larger point is 
is the fact that um, there are limits to black radicalism because black radicals die. Black radicals are not going to be storming the U.S. Capitol. They're going to be shot dead. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, So the limitations of saying, you know, I'm a radical, this is what I stand for, but what what can you actually do or say as a black radical Mm -hmm. in the context of the American experience? Mm -hmm. I think you know, that's just the question that's on my mind right now for obvious reasons. Well, but, even on that, if I may, uh, sure. and I think you'll find Harrison insightful on this, too. Uh, during World War One, Woodrow Wilson uh, urged the urged the U.S. to enter World War One to make the world safe for democracy. Harrison knew that Wilson had no interest in making the world safe for democracy. Sure, <laughs> and and so when he when he uh, formed the Liberty League, uh, he first wrote uh, their slogan was "Let's make the South safe for democracy," you know, and take these slogans um, of uh, Wilson, you know, about democracy, and let's use them to our advantage, you know, you're, you're talking about democracy, well, we want democracy. And uh, he he understood that it was a, a camouflage behind which, he says, behind which Wilson and others hid their sordid imperialist <laughs> demands and ideas and things like that. But you can sometimes take their own words and use them against them, if you will. Um, that's just one little insight he offers. Sure. And I, and I think, like you say, I think some of these um, foremost intellectuals, you know, like Du Bois, is, they're kind of following these other radicals and are critical of, of people like um, Garvey initially. Right, <laughs> but you under, you understand that Harrison's critique of Du Bois was stunning in World War One, because Du Bois wrote an editorial entitled "Close Ranks," and this was written while Du Bois was following the lead of Jolie Spingarn and seeking a captaincy in military intelligence. This is all documented in Volume One, and Du Bois wrote an editorial in the Crisis entitled "Close Ranks," in which he said. While this war lasts, let us forget our special grievances. And Harrison comments later, we all know what they were, uh, lynching, segregation, and disfranchisement. And Du Bois says, let us forget our special grievances and close ranks behind Wilson's war effort. So Harrison tore into him in public. And Du Bois would never forgive Harrison for this. Harrison was right, of course. And Harrison nailed him on it. And... uh, that's why. That's one reason uh, Du Bois would never mention or promote Harrison later on. But interestingly, Herbert Apdecker, who was the chronicler of much of Du Bois's life in later years, uh, wrote that about forty years after this. And I cite this in Volume Two, and I've got the quotation, you know, the citation. Forty years after that, nineteen eighteen Du Bois editorial, Du Bois acknowledged his critics were correct. You know, um, but. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But the, no. Du Bois, some people portray him as a big militant during World War One, but Harrison and, and many of the uh, more militant black leaders were strongly critical. Harrison and William Monroe Trotter and others convened a meeting in Washington, D.C. called the Liberty Congress with men and women from 35 states, I think it was, uh, to demand enforcement uh, of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and uh, and, uh, and federal uh, anti-lynching legislation, you know, anti-lynching. And uh, these were demands 
that the NAACP was not making, NAACP under the leadership of Jolie Spingarn, who, as I said, was a at that time a captain in military intelligence, because um, Spingarn, you know, it wasn't his position at all. And what's interesting is, and he was the major influence on Du Bois. Uh, one other thing I want to point out in a second too, but uh, so Spingarn uh, was not in support of that position, and. He was the major influence on Du Bois. Du Bois made his own decision to write his editorial. But another thing I point out in this book, and it's important for people today, is I say, look at where people are you know, getting their money from. And Garvey was getting his from selling Black Star Line and Liberian construction loans. Spingon was a major supporter financially of Du Bois, right? And then later there was right, a sure. Uh, Garland Fund, where he got money, uh, as did Randolph and Owen from the Garland Fund. People are getting money from various sources. And Harrison would always say, it was said back in 1921, when the Communist Party tried to talk to Harrison to come and join ranks with them and be their leader uh, amongst the black uh, uh, activists in the States, that he refused to do it. And one of the comments was he refused to be their stalking horse against Garvey. He didn't want to. He didn't want to take their money if they were going to try and sing his tune. And similarly, in 1918, when he comes out, or in 1917-18, when he's put, publishing his paper, The Voice, it was starting to run into financial problems, and some white donor came up and offered him ten thousand dollars, which was a staggering sum back then, and he refused it because he said, "No, we're going to. I don't. You know, we're not going to be bought like that." Uh, not, they're not the positions everybody would take, but uh, particularly somebody in poverty like Harrison was. But um, so these are other aspects of Harrison and his. Uh, he had, you know, just took some amazingly interesting stands and positions. Yeah, and and it's clear. I think I would assume most scholars, Du Bois scholars, it's, um, should know he's following the radicals. He's not leading them. <laughs> Right. Certainly not in the early 20s. Yeah, yeah. And the, the scholarship on Du Bois is not critical enough. This is one big problem that I have. And is that Harrison, the scholarship is, key. On Harrison is a key. If, 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 if Harrison comes out, then that, that you know, even when uh, in one of the books that comes out and talks about during World War One, one of the books on the New Negro that uh, has Harrison's articles all all misstated and everything, so they look like they're written much later. And it talks about Harrison being influenced uh, on his medical, uh, radical stance during World War One by the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, which is exactly wrong because it was Harrison who was the leading critic of Du Bois. But, you know, right. that's just not out there in a lot of the history that people are given. No, it's not. It's I rarely see uh, Harrison, and like you said, it's usually a footnote or a mention. Mm-hmm. And um, and you talked about also biographies, um, the biographies that have been written. I mean, how many more biographies do we need of Du Bois? There's so many. <laughs> yeah. <There's... laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I saw your point about, you know, volume one and volume two. So what's next for you? Will there be a volume three, Dr. Perry? No, no. Well, I, I talked to him about it, but they said, no, make it all, make it end here. So, but I, I have been approached by Oxford to do uh something that would be like a college reader, you know, something uh, 
uh, more accessible, oh, okay. you know, collected writings. Um, there's that. Verso wants to do a uh, an updated uh, two-volume invention of the white race in one volume, uh, you know, with updated intro by me and things like that. And that's important because there's a lot of this talk about a lot of the people don't understand Alan's work, and that's unfortunate too, because he's writing from the '60s on white skin privilege. But it's not what you get from Peggy Mack and Tosh and all right. those people in the '80s, uh, you know, about the invisible knapsack and that. It's a class-based, class struggle approach, and how the ruling class utilizes privileges extended to the uh, European American workers to maintain social control. And it's not those privileges aren't in the workers' interest. And so Alan's invention of the white race builds off that analysis and his two volumes. Uh, they've done very well since we came out with the second edition in 2012. But now the thinking is let's p- try and put it all in one big, vo- another big volume of close to a thousand pages. <laughs> Another thousand. Pages. I just got to stay healthy. I I, I didn't. I, I, should, I know, right? I should add. Um. Uh, another thing I might want to write about. I, I'm dealing with some health issues. Uh, both. Uh, uh, one is I, when I work for the union, and I still have all my union stuff to deal with too, because I've been in a battle. Uh, the union I worked for, I, I may have mentioned, was organized crime dominated when I was working with them. And, uh, you know, I tried to place a lot of papers up at UMass Amherst, along with Allen's papers and Du Bois papers and things like that. And they they intervened and said a lot of these papers are theirs, which not true. And uh, so I got in, in that battle. And um, but I have lots of postal materials I want to get out, well, all those writings, because in the, the work on the, um, in the in the post office and you'll see one or two of these articles on the front page of my webpage, which is, by the way, is www.jeffreybperry.net. You'll find, uh, you, listeners will find lots of information on what we're talking about, Harrison Allen, et cetera, if you search around. But I have articles on how we tried to wage struggle in the working class against white supremacy. And we did it with some good degree of success at all levels, right? Uh, uh, until you know, got hammered a bit later, but, um, and, but I'm, you know, in these next few years, I'm also dealing with health issues because while I worked for the union, I was in lower Manhattan on nine 11 when, uh, you know, everything blew up, <laughs> not everything, but a lot. And, uh, we were told that the air was clean and everything like that. And, uh, I subsequently developed a nine 11 related illness, which, uh, has taken its toll. And then more recently, when my wife got sick, sick, I stayed with her in the hospital. And that was in early March when Trump was saying everything was fine and we got exposed to COVID. So, you know, I'm dealing with that, too. I, I don't really have symptoms. She has some symptoms. So that's just another issue. I got to try and stay healthy to do all these things. But, um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to do and uh, I, I want to get it done. Uh, but Harrison, Allen. And the postal stuff are three major topics that I still want to work on. Okay. Well, Dr. Perry, we have taken up enough of your time this afternoon, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. And I hope it, uh, oh, if I may, uh, people, if they want sure. to get the books, the Hubert Harrison books, if they go to Columbia University Press webpage and use the code CUP20, 
they can get the books at 20% discount. Oh, thank you Yeah, for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. and then my webpage has lots of information on all these other things I've been doing. But CUP20, Columbia University Press 20, and uh, they can get each book. And at first when we, we printed, um, they, they were slow getting out because we were – you know, they couldn't keep up with the demand. I mean, not that it's so great, but they're already it's finished not. the second printing now or something like that. I don't know.